This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. One of my best childhood memories was visiting my grandmother Greta for Christmas. She lived in northern Utah, and she had the coziest house this side of Denmark. My favorite thing to do was to sit in the rocking chair by the fireplace and read this book of fairy tales she kept there. The Fisherman and His Wife, The Frog Prince, Little Red Riding Hood, The Bremen Town Musicians. I loved that feeling of being transported to another time and place, a world without school, chores, and cable news. The stories I read at my grandmother's house are hundreds of years old. They began as oral folk tales, passed down and refined from one generation to the next. But they began to take on a new life in the early 19th century when two German brothers named Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm compiled them into a book they called Children's and Household Tales. Children appeared in the book's title, but the stories the Grimm brothers collected were much darker than the versions we typically hear or see today. A lot of the tales, uh, at least as they're collected in this volume, are not really for children. Um, so I've tried actually experimentally <laughs> to read to read some of the fairy tales in the Grimm's collections to my own children, who are four and seven, and um, found that a lot of them had really scary and objectionable content. So I found myself sort of um, modifying it for their ears, which is really interesting. That's Annie Pfeiffer, a professor of Germanic languages at Columbia University. The Grimm's collected hundreds of stories from many different cities, towns, and villages, often modifying the tales before publication to fit their intended audience. The Grimm's modified the tales for their collection, Disney modified the tales for their animated versions, and Professor Pfeiffer modified the tales for her children. This malleability is partly why these stories remain alive. I think one of the most interesting thing about fairy tales is how how they continue to evolve and how they're not stable and they're not um, definite and they, you know, produce more and more stories. So it's a kind of, you know, an ongoing iterative process. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Annie Pfeiffer to discuss Grimm's fairy tales. Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm were born in 1785 and 86 in Hanau, Germany. From their childhood onward, the brothers were very, very close. They're inseparable. In fact, I think that they only spent a few days apart in their entire lives. Um, so they even, um, it was a big problem when one of them got married uh, because it became a kind of <laughs> more like a relationship between the three of them. From all accounts that I've heard, uh, you know, they the, the wife had to sort of accommodate their relationship. So she was almost like a third wheel in their, <laughs> in their brotherly relationship. So there's all sorts of jokes. They were two brothers in a family of nine children. They had a difficult childhood. They lost their father um, at a fairly young age 
But what was mostly um, sort of the aftermath of, you know, losing their father at a young age is that their position became increasingly precarious in society. Their mother um, was supporting, you know, a fairly large family of children. Because money was tight, the brother's aunt paid for them to study at the Fredericks Gymnasium School in Kassel in present-day Germany. They each graduated at the top of their class. After high school, they attended the University of Marburg. But despite their academic success, they were often looked down upon because of their lower social class. So they were very reliant on, um, you know, the support of scholars that they met at the university, uh, including a legal scholar who ultimately ended up sort of, you know, changing their career and putting them in touch with uh, Clemens Brentano, who was the sort of the originator of this fairy tale collecting uh, book. Clemens Brentano was a German novelist and poet who, along with fellow poet Achim von Arnhem, wanted to collect and publish folktales. This was a moment in time where people were really interested in uh, sort of literature from all areas of society. So not just sort of the highbrow literature of the Enlightenment, but it was literature that was told by the folk, right? So you have a real uh, interest in collecting not only folk tales, but also songs, ballads, um, you know, poems uh, that perhaps were uh, at some point in in oral form. and there's real a, a real attempt to capture culture, uh, not just at the highest, sort of most educated elite levels of society. This wasn't just an academic pursuit. It was also an act of preservation. The Industrial Revolution was rapidly changing the European economy and way of life. Many forms of traditional culture were disappearing. These scholars wanted to preserve German culture before industrialization wiped it out completely. For this project, Brentano enlisted the help of the Grimm brothers. The Grimm brothers published the first edition of their collection of folktales in 1812. It contained 86 individual stories. Over the next 50 years, the number of stories continued to grow, and the audience evolved. The collection grew to almost 200 tales. Um, And with each edition, you see significant changes happening. Um, And so uh, one of the things the Grimm's did was they increasingly sought to sort of make them for children, right? So initially, it had been a project that was largely scholarly, that was oriented towards, um, you know, collecting culture and making sure that, you know, uh, as the Industrial Revolution is in in its full form, that, you know, the the cultures and traditions of um, the the people, the folk, are being uh, preserved, right, in a moment where a lot of this is under threat. But then as the, um, you know, project grew and grew, uh, they realized there was a real audience for these tales. So that project in itself is kind of interesting, that it started as a folklore collection and ultimately became a kind of almost a pedagogical reference for German school children in, you know, 19th century Germany. As the Grimm brothers geared these tales towards a younger audience, they adapted certain aspects to make them more child-friendly. In these adaptations, the brothers drew inspiration from their own lives. The Grimm brothers spent much of their lives in the German town of Kassel. When they were in their early 20s, Napoleon Bonaparte was on a rampage across Europe, conquering much of the continent. 
And so they're writing in Germany at a time where the French are sort of occupying uh, their town. Um, and so I think this gives their idea of what uh, a fairy tale is and their kind of notion of, of what German culture meant to them, um, a special kind of significance, um, in part because uh, the notion of Germany itself was so um, precarious. This precarity is woven into the fairy tales. Many of the stories involve children getting lost or abandoned in the woods, left to fend for themselves in a magical and dangerous world. In addition to this national precarity, the brothers' personal lives were plagued by uncertainty. So they, I think, you know, they did feel quite precarious growing up, um, you know, caught between social classes, um, you know, threatened with um, the prospect of losing, um, you know, uh, the kind of family name that they had after their father passed away. And then there was also, you know, the the Napoleonic forces that were occupying Kassel at the time. Um, I think it all created a sort of condition of precarity, um, which you really do see, I think, reflected in a lot of tales. I mean, one of the things that I keep coming back to is just how difficult childhood is for all these yeah protagonists in fairy tales. There's not one child that has seems to have a good childhood. They're all very difficult. They all lose parents or, you know, are threatened by sort of evil step-parents. You know, they're abandoned in the forest like Hensel and Gretel. I mean, yeah, I'd be pressed to find an example of a happy child in, in the Grimm's fairy tales. Because fairy tales for children was a relatively new genre at the time, the stories tended to take shape by falling into a couple different categories. I would say there's two kinds of fairy tales um, that um, are being produced in this period. Um, and people usually differentiate between an oral fairy tale, which is called a Volksmärchen, and a literary fairy tale, or a Kunstmärchen. One, the folk fairy tale is really supposed to be the product of oral folklore. It's, you know, collected by people who have been in touch with storytellers, right? This is the, the product of an oral tradition. These folk tales were what the Grimm brothers and Clemens Brentano were collecting. The literary fairy tale or the Kunstmärchen would be something that was created for the page. And so, uh, you know, what, an example of that would be like The Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen. Hans Christian Andersen, um, who lived, you know, a few uh, decades later in, in Denmark, was one of the sort of famous creators of a lot of fairy tales. The Grimm brothers were collecting existing spoken folktales, and Andersen was writing new stories for the page. But both of these traditions were born out of the Romantic movement. So the Romanticism is really a kind of movement also against the Enlightenment, which is the, the movement that preceded it immediately, where um, there was a real emphasis on rationality and reason. Everything was, uh, you know, understood and elucidated. Uh, you know, science became the kind of the important um, uh, sort of discipline that all other disciplines oriented themselves by. Um, and romanticism was really a shift away from that idea, right? So there was a an interest not simply in high culture, but as an interest in, you know, what what others were saying, what the, the, the folk, right? The word folklore comes from folk, right? Which is the people. Um, so this is, um, you know, a movement that's interested in, uh, you know, large 
parts of society that had been excluded from the Enlightenment. So these are, you know, the everyday people, the illiterate people, the peasants, and specifically, you know, a, a class who was often left out of the Enlightenment was the, was women who were, you know, largely excluded from education and the Enlightenment. Um, and so this was an interest in their culture as well. Folklore was often considered a female pursuit, a kind of narrative women's work. There is a constant sort of connection between sort of female storytelling and the domestic arts, you know, spinning, weaving um, has also been sort of connected that, you know, many of these stories were told as women were sort of knitting or weaving together um, and they would tell stories to sort of pass the time. For these women, telling stories was a form of entertainment. The Grimm brothers wanted to capture that entertainment as well. So many of the stories contain elements of magic and the supernatural from mythic medieval times. In all tales, there's this kind of aspect that you're looking back on a, a past um, that, that you know, occurred or something. Um, so it's always a kind of nostalgic uh, kind of uh, retrospective perspective in all these fairy tales. This was a common element in romanticism, a kind of wistful reminiscence of the past. Another element of the Romantic movement was the connection to emotion. The Enlightenment celebrated science and rationality, but Romanticism emphasized things that were felt and not measurable by science. It was emotion, it was feeling, it was subjectivity, it was the irrational. Um, these were all aspects that in some way had been kind of kept out of, of the cultural discourse and the Enlightenment, and this became an important feature of what we think of now as kind of the German Romantic movement, which was all, largely also transnational. I mean, you see it in, in England, you know, with Wordsworth and, and poets, uh, Coleridge. So you see it throughout Europe at this time and also in the U.S. It's interesting to me that they were, even in, you know, the 19th century, already pining for this moment when the world seemed a bit more more magical. I think it's like a reaction also to the Industrial Revolution, which was happening at this time, right? A move to the cities. So I think it coincides with this real kind of uh, shift, um, you know, in, in the early 19th century from, you know, kind of rural pastoral life to sort of big cities. This is when, you know, uh, technology is about to change dramatically. Um, and I think there is a real interest in preserving the aspects of culture that are threatened by this move to the city, this kind of industrialization. A lot of the stories that the Grimm's were collecting came from peasants and farmers who lived outside the city and worked the land for a living. They're very rural. They're very pastoral, right? Think of, uh, you know, even Snow White, um, you know, and 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 Little Red Riding Hood, right? It's your the 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 key motif in so many of these fairy tales is the forest, right? Um, so it's a kind of it's also an early interest in naturalism, right? And and sort of ecological life, right? What's deeply interesting in fairy tales is that so much, so often nature is the force of good, right? Very few times do you see nature sort of not being good. You see almost always a kind of uh, a love for nature and a belief in the healing um, and sort of virtue of, of, of the natural world, which you see really reflected in these tales where like you see animals saving people or, you know, the birds play a, an important role in fairy tales. They often come to the help of, of these protagonists. What do we know about how these stories were composed and shared. You know, especially when we think of books, 
we always sort of think of, um, we have a really interest in what the original tale was or what the original story is like. But with, with stories, with oral folklore, there is no original, right? You can't point back and say, oh, this is the first occasion that the story was told. Um, and so the, the stories themselves are constantly evolving. There's no definite or sort of real or authentic version of a story, right? So you can point back and say, well, there were different versions circulating of, you know, Little Red Riding Hood. Um, but the, the, the fact that they're oral makes them so malleable, right? So, um, you know, the idea was that a storyteller would take something like, uh, you know, a folkloric mo motif like Little Red Riding Hood and perhaps infuse it with local detail, right? Instead of uh, a forest, he might say, or she might say, uh, you know, it's a local forest. Uh, you know, <laughs> if you were setting it in New York, you would say, you know, Central Park or something. You would, you would add local detail to make it um, relatable to the audience. And these audiences included adults. We think of them now as stories told to children, but especially when you think about um, the way these stories, you know, were often circulated, you can see that they could have also been easily told by adults for adult entertainment. And when you look back at earlier versions of Little Red Riding Hood, <laughs> she's actually, um, she's like uh, performing a strip tease for the wolf and then ends up tricking him and sort of locking him into the house and running away through a strip tease. But obviously this would not be, <laughs> been a very good version to tell children. So you can see why the Grimm's kind of edited out these details. But um, yeah, there, it's a really rich tradition and, you know, it's, it's very polyphonic. So, you know, it's hard to sort of say um, how these tales kind of originated, but you can certainly trace them all over. I mean, there, there have been versions of Cinderella that have been traced to China, right? So, um, so we can see that these tales are transnational. There's nothing specifically even German about a lot of them, right? Of course, the, the Grimm's collected them, but uh, in fact, that they're far more uh, sort of transnational than uh, this kind of marketing would have sort of suggested. Let's talk about the stories themselves now. What are some of them that you think are most interesting to consider? I mean, all the greatest hits are there, right? Um, you know, a lot of the tales that we've we've sort of grown up listening to, uh, Snow White, Little Red Riding Hood, uh, Briar Rose, um, the Frog Prince. Um, but what one of the really deeply interesting things I think about the stories, especially when you look at the kind of versions, is that you see really how they changed and some of the kind of remarkable changes that were made, in fact, even by the Grimm's themselves, to try to make them a bit more sanitized. So we think of Grimm's as being sort of particularly kind of violent and crass, but, uh, you know, already they had significantly sanitized the tales. To, just to give one example, um, in uh, sort of an earlier version of Snow White, um, uh, in the kind of earliest versions of in the Grimm's, um, it had been the mother who wanted to, uh, who was uh, sort of threatened by her daughter, um, and wanted to abandon her in the forest. And the Grimm's were like, wait a second, that does not really work. We can't have a mother abandoning her child. So they turned it into a stepmother. 
Um, same with Hensel and Gretel. In an earlier version of Hensel and Gretel, it was the mother that wanted to abandon the children because of, you know, famine. Um, but the Grimm's realized that that wouldn't really work. So it became a stepmother. And so, yeah, you, you see these tales where you're like, oh, I, I know Briar Rose or I know the Frog Prince. Um, but actually, the way it's told in the Grimm's is quite different. Another interesting difference is uh, in, in, in one of the versions of the Frog Prince in the Grimm's, um, uh, she is, the princess is so disgusted by the frog that she throws him against the wall and then he becomes a prince. Um, so it's not a kiss, you know, which you think of in the kind of Disney version, right? It has to be a kiss that sort of wakes up uh, or, or kind of summons him out of his spell. But no, it's an act of just complete frustration taking the, the frog and throwing him against the wall. Before the Grimm brothers adapted these tales for children, there was very little literature specifically for kids. Obviously, children had been around for a long time, but the idea of childhood and that there would be a specific market for children's books was very new. Um, and the Grimm's, I think, to their credit, were the first to realize that perhaps children uh, didn't weren't just kind of using um, the same material as their, you know, their parents, uh, but perhaps uh, had their own sort of uh, repository of tales and and uh, sort of culture at their fingertips. Um, and so they really were one of the first to kind of market literature specifically for children. Um, and this kind of produced a whole uh, genre of children's literature, which until then, at this point, had been virtually, you know, unknown and certainly wouldn't have been, you know, within kind of the the... Uh, purview of publishers, right? Maybe if you had a, you know, a book, it would never have been sort of widespread or or circulated beyond a kind of intimate audience. So the idea that you're mass producing books for children was itself a very new thing. So in 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 large part, I would say also the Grimm's were responsible for creating the kind of genre of children's literature um, and popularizing it and making it um, something, uh, you know, that people took seriously. So the purpose of these tales, you know, surely was at some level just to simply entertain the delight of the story. But were there also morals embedded in them? I do think that there are morals, you know, um, a lot of them do have sort of clear moral um kind of guidelines. One thing that the Grimm's really did is they Christianized a lot of the tales. So they really kind of added Christian imagery. Um, you know, they uh, put a lot of sort of Christian symbolism into the tales. Um, so it would sort of make more sense along a kind of moral uh, register. And there's a clear division between good and evil, right? Um, you don't have a lot of sort of nuanced characters. Most characters are either really good or really bad. You know, if you're marketing something for children, you know, uh, moral nuance is kind of hard to explain, right? So you have to make it almost sort of more cut and dry. So that's why a lot of these kind of heroes are, you know, diametrically opposed to the kind of villains. And you kind of have this like binary split in so many fairy tales. Um, but that is actually a byproduct very much of the Grimm's editing. If you look at earlier versions, you have much more sort of, you know, kind of... Um, uh, sort of ambivalent characters who are not necessarily all good or bad. How popular was this collection? It's hard to overstate how popular they were and how widely circulated these tales were. I mean, one of my students, you know, she was 
she grew up in Saudi Arabia and she said, oh, I, I grew up reading these tales in Saudi Arabia, the Grimm's tales. And this is how I first understood about, you know, what fairy tales actually mean. And, you know, in some ways, I think that's actually um, the, the case that these tales were circulated um, all over Europe, certainly and in, in all over the world. Um, and I think that, you know, they influenced, obviously, uh, an interest, as I mentioned before, in children's literature, but they also interest, um, created an interest in sort of fairy tales, um, the whole genre of fairy tales, that it was something uh, that could be literary, right? Um, think of Hans Christian Andersen. I mean, he wrote beautiful tales for, for children and he um, spent so much time, you know, investing in uh, stories uh, that were told for children. This would never have happened 100 years earlier, right? The fact that somebody could make a livelihood from telling stories and writing down stories um, for children was, was something I think that uh, was deeply influenced by the Grimm's. The Grimm's collection of fairy tales became so popular and so influential that different movements around the world appropriated them to fit their needs, for better or worse. Fairy tales are very malleable, right? So they can be used for good or bad. Um, so one of the really interesting things is um, there's kind of utopic retellings of fairy tales, right, that were used uh, by socialist revolutionaries in the early 20th century to talk about how, you know, fairy tales... Uh, uh, should promote the transformation of social classes, right? So you can see how that could be, how that reading could be um, elicited by fairy tales, right? The rags to riches stories are so kind of um, evocative, but uh, the darker side is the way that they've been appropriated by nationalist movements, such as, um, you know, the Nazi party. In particular, there was a real interest in kind of screening fairy tales. So there's a lot of, um, movies that were made in the 30s uh, that had uh, fairy tale motifs and that were retold kind of from an anti-Semitic perspective. Um, so there's this one terrible uh, version of Little Red Riding Hood where um, the wolf is characterized as a kind of, you know, the Jewish outsider. Um, Little Red Riding Hood has swastikas on her cape. Um, and so, you know, it's it, the the symbolism is obviously, you know, very overt. Um, some are less kind of overdetermined, um, but you really have an interest in German folklore in the 30s um, uh, in, in retelling these stories um, to kind of promote German nationalism and to sort of suggest that these tales are German when in fact they're not, right? As we discussed earlier, they're transnational. A lot of them are French. A lot of them have foreign elements in them that are anything but German. So the idea that the German nationalist movement like uh, National Socialism would use these tales uh, for Nazi propaganda is particularly ironic given how heterogeneous and sort of widespread they were. Although the fairy tales were already widely known, the Nazis were able to use them to spread their own specific agenda. As a result, fairy tales were taken out of the education system, and the public took a break from them. There was a real shift away from fairy tales in the post-war period because they were seen as too entrenched in German nationalism. Um, and so I think that shows the kind of way in which they were misused uh, by, by, by nationalism uh, and by nationalist movements in um, and so part of what I try to teach students is that, you know, these, these tales are much more, uh, 
much more multifarious in, than this kind of reading would suggest. Um, and to think about them as kind of multinational, multi-transnational uh, constructs rather than uh, being anything German, anything specifically German. Of course, you know, these were the, uh, German brothers who happened to collect them and transcribe them. Um, but, you know, the tales were much more far-reaching than, than that, that origin would suggest. So what what is the post World War II story of of fairy tales and and stories? Um, how how are they still with us all the way till the present? I think you don't really have to look too much farther than probably Disney did to see how. Um you know, how salient these tales are today. In fact, Disney gives us a kind of image of a fairy tale um, that, you know, then informs our reading of the Grimm's, right? A lot of these tales are quite different than the kind of Disney versions. But in some ways, the Disney, you know, the Disneyfication is no really not so different from the grimification of fairy tales, right? These were also fairy tales that were then repackaged and commodified for a kind of audience. Um, and so in some ways, the Grimm's kind of did what the the Disney would do much later, right? Um, in making something popular and, and finding ways to kind of uh, disseminate these tales to a, to a wider audience. So I do think that the post-war tradition has a lot of kind of... Um, has a lot of influence still today, but I also think that um, there's consistently, um, you know, efforts to rethink tales, which to me are really interesting, right? Um, you know, one uh, one tale we're looking at actually for, for this week is called Cinderella's Dead, um, and it's uh, told from a sort of queer perspective um, and it talks about how uh, the real desire is is between two female characters rather than a, a prince. So I think there's really been an effort in the last certainly 20, 30 years to kind of rethink fairy tales, you know, um, from sort of the politically correct fairy tales where, you know, there's an effort to kind of make all the, the, the fairy tales more PC. Um, and so uh, there's, all sorts of really funny allusions to the fairy tales there. But, you know, there's also sort of more serious retellings where there's real effort made to kind of rethink how the fairy tales could be made uh, or, or cultivated for progressive purposes. Um, and not just, you know, a damsel in distress who is has to be saved by, by a prince. Um, and so I, I think that that sh- sort of is a testament to the malleability of fairy tales, that they're not just encoded with sort of patriarchal norms and thus have to be discarded, but that they can be continually re- reimagined. And that's kind of the sort of post-war legacy of fairy tales is kind of reimagining them for different political and uh, social purposes. Yeah, I love that, you know, the idea that these, these stories are clay um, and there's kind of a basic shape and then you can just form it to fit your needs and your own delight. Yeah, exactly. At least that's how I try to look at them because I think that that is how they originally started, right? How they were, you know, constantly evolving and changing um, and people made them their own. Um, who do fairy tales belong to? They belong to everybody. I think they're everybody's tales and, you know, it's up to us to change them in ways that um, are useful and helpful and empowering to us, ourselves as readers and listeners. Fairy tales can also offer us a lesson in resilience. Bruno Bettelheim is a psychoanalyst, um, and he talks a lot about the kind of psychological importance of fairy tales. And he tells us that um, he actually used, he was um, 
a Jewish exile who lived in the U.S. for many years after fleeing the Nazis and used fairy tales in part to treat um, kind of traumatized children um, and war refugees. And he thought actually fairy tales have a really important message for us also that, you know, uh, life is really difficult. It's hard, right? There are lots of obstacles and um, but yet you can triumph and prevail over them, right? Um, I think fairy tales actually have a lot of kind of important lessons in how to become more resilient, right? These kids are really resilient. Um, and I think kids are more resilient than we give credit for. And I think that's part of what you see in these tales. Um, and by sanitizing them, I think sometimes you're taking out the important lessons that children learn, which is that they can, you know, that even if their parents die or even if, you know, um, their parents try to kill them, they will still be okay. <laughs> the Grimm brothers initially set out to preserve a rapidly fading culture, but they ended up creating a whole new literary genre. By combining elements of romanticism, oral folk traditions, and the precariousness of their own lives, they gave new meaning to centuries-old tales that continue to evolve today. They were responsible for creating the genre of children's literature in part. They um, were deeply uh, interested and conscious in this practice uh, of collecting folklore. So paying attention to the traditions and stories of everyday people, not just sort of the cultured elites, but the culture that was um, passed through um, through individuals and through uh, homes and, and through sort of peasant life. One of the um, most long-lasting um, effects of the Grimm's fairy tales was the sort of popularization and widespread appeal of fairy tales for a modern audience, right? That they weren't just these kind of medieval Baroque tales uh, that, you know, were kind of in the annals of history, but that they could be retold and redeployed. So I think in some ways they also started the tradition of retelling stories and, you know, everything from, you know, uh, the kind of uh, interest in, in in fairy tales, utopic fairy tales in, in you know, Weimar Germany to the Disney uh, uh, in the, the, the the Disney culture. Um, so this was a kind of investment in the fairy tale, but in the modernity, paradoxically in the modernity of the fairy tale, that it wasn't this archaic phenomenon that was removed from us, but that it had import and relevance to our everyday lives, even though it was set in a kind of distant past, that it could give us lessons. But also, they were just fun tales to read. They're hilarious. They're often very... Uh, crazy and weird, but they're great. You know, they're really entertaining. And that's, we shouldn't also lose sight of that. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.